Nah. Oh, this is pretty. Mm-mm, 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 yeah. That's better. But you know what? I can't talk very well while wearing this mask right now, i got to be honest with you. But we're all wearing a lot of masks today, aren't we? And I'm sure you've had parents, guardians, other people telling you reasons why you should wear a mask. And they're right. It's good for your health and it's a very important thing. So please listen to that. But I'm here to talk to you today about a different kind of mask. And we learn about this in the Bible and the first book of the New Testament is called Matthew. And this is a long passage. It's in Matthew 23 where Jesus talks to people called the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were people who were like the most knowledgeable people. They knew more than anybody about God's Word. At least they knew it up here. They knew it up here. They could they could tell you 5 plus 5 is 10 faster than you could even think it out in your brain. So they knew all the right things to say in their mind because they knew God's Word. But the problem is, Jesus talked to them about the fact that they did not know it in their hearts. And the word that is used a lot of times you hear, you might hear an adult using this word, it's called a hypocrite. Now a hypocrite is the person who wears the mask on the outside, but is a totally different person on the inside. So what Jesus was talking about was your hearts aren't pure the way your talk is on the outside. So you could talk a good game, as some people like to say, hey, that per he or she talks a really good game, but their actions don't line up. And why is that? Well, he talked about the fact that the Spirit inside of them, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus comes to us, when we accept Jesus into our life, he gives us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit guides us, and we know in our heart. You know, you can set rules out, but your Spirit tells you what's really right and wrong to do. It's a lot like if your parents told you, hey, clean up your bedroom, you clean up your clean up this room, and you just pushed everything underneath the bed. Now I know nobody would actually do anything like that, of course, but if they did, on the surface it might look like the room was clean. Well, much the same way, somebody might act like they're good on the outside, but inside their heart was not in the right place. So they might just do it for show to say, oh, look what I did this great thing for Miss Jennifer and how wonderful I was for doing that when really I just wanted everybody to be complimenting me for doing that thing instead of my heart saying, you know, Jennifer, it's just like you and I, she has created an image of God and I love Jennifer and I'm doing this because I love her and because God loves her. And so a lot of times, what Jesus is talking to them about is you're not doing things because you're having God in your heart. You're trying to set all the rules. And even worse, he was saying they were extra bad, not only because they knew this stuff, but also he was making it harder for the people that actually wanted to trust God. They were so worried about the rules that they were forgetting what it was to have the Spirit directing them. So you know that when somebody tells you the right thing to do, Sometimes you know that in your heart if you know you're doing the wrong thing. You don't have to have a teacher, a parent, 
or even a brother or sister or friend to tell you when it's the wrong thing. A lot of times you know what's the right thing in your spirit. A lot of times that's the Holy Spirit telling you what's the right thing to do. And that's why Jesus had to speak to them because they were supposed to know the right thing to do, yet their hearts weren't right. And the only reason our hearts can be made right is because we have the love of Jesus. And because of our love and acceptance of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit working in us. And that's why Jesus was so upset with them, because they should have known better, yet their spirit and their heart was not right. And that's what I want you to get and pay attention to the message today, which I know they'll go into a lot more length telling you the very same things. Thank you. Good morning. Now, what he won't tell you is that shoving everything under your bed only works if you have a really nice bed skirt. Personally, I prefer throwing the comforter over everything. But it works either way. Well, this morning, we are in Matthew chapter 23. We're looking at the last week of Jesus' life, and we are looking at what Jesus determines is essential. Uh, it, it, the things that, if he knows he has a week left to live, this is what he chooses to communicate. And I'm going to warn you that this morning's passage is harsh. It will sound very harsh to you, and the, the good news is it applies to you in just as harsh of a way as it did to the original audience. And the better news is that it points us to our need for Jesus and our love of the gospel, uh, that much more so. And as I was thinking about this, I thought of a story that I heard from a journalist who was spending some time in Italy, and he got on a train there. And he sat down on the train, and right across from him was uh, an older Italian man who was smoking a cigar. And right above the man was a big sign that said, no smoking. And he thought, well, you know, I don't want to... I don't want to start anything. This isn't my country. This isn't my culture. I don't really know how things work here. But the guy made eye contact with him, so he just kind of pointed up at the sign. And the man smoking looked up at it, and he said, Oh, don't worry. He said, That means for other people. And what this man was doing is something that should be familiar to us, which is that he thought he could decide for himself what is essential and what is a non-essential instruction. In fact... Many of us have had to wrestle with that exact question personally in the last few months when your government asks you to wear a mask for the benefit of yourself and especially for others. And some people are going through the rationale trying to decide, oh, well, is that essential? You know, does that apply to me? And, uh, you know, you don't want to be like the man on the train who says, well, that means everybody else should wear one, but, you know, I'm above such rules. But the trick is, and why I thought of this, is that each one of us, all of us have this tendency to want to decide for ourselves what is essential. And the problem, the trick for us is when we try to do that with our religion, with our faith, we have a tendency to make our religion all about us. We want to practice the parts that will make us look like we're better at it. We tend to ignore the parts that are harder to do or we might disagree with. And we exclude other people with our practices. Now, what Jesus is challenging us to do, the big idea here, is that Jesus challenges us to let go of all our pretenses surrounding our religion and center our religious devotion on the heart of the gospel, what is essential to the gospel. And so with that in mind, we're going to read 
from Matthew 23, verses 13 to 36. I encourage you to pull it up on your phone or device. Now, I'm just going to read one woe at a time. And the passage is broken into seven woes. Uh, and so before we do that, uh, Matthew 23, I'm going to encourage you to join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your written word. We ask now that you would open our hearts and minds to receive uh, that which you are speaking to us. That we would understand that this message written centuries and millennia ago uh, is just as potent truth for us as it was in the day it was written. I pray that you would guide us to understand and to rightly understand and to apply everything that you are saying this morning through your word. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, I have to move at a pretty good pace here. There's seven woes. Standard sermon is a three-point sermon. So this is a little more than twice that, but I promise it's not more than twice the normal length of a sermon. Unless you guys slow me down. Woe number one, starting in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now, there's a commentator who says this. He goes to that first woe and he says, the first woe decries the ironic state of affairs that those who should be opening the kingdom to people pointing them to a proper relationship with God are actually closing the door. And I would even add to that, not only are they closing the door in people's faces, they're standing on the wrong side of the door when they're closing it. And so the warning here is not to lead people astray with pretenses and with false signs of piety, false signs of holiness, false signs of religion. And the question then for us in our modern day is in our goal to be a growing, diverse community of believers. What barriers do we, as individuals and collectively as a church or as a denomination, what barriers do we put around Jesus? If all our actions are supposed to be pointing people to getting to know, getting to understand, getting to read the words of Jesus, what obstacles are we putting in their way? And the answer isn't nothing. In fact, this uh, became very potent to me. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was on the phone with someone who went to the same seminary as me, but not at the same time. But because the professors only have one set of lectures, we heard the same material. And we had a seminary professor who made this vast, enigmatic statement that we all agreed with at the time until the rubber meets the road. And he said this. He said, we should never put... Uh, requirements on people in our churches that Jesus himself does not put on people. Now, who would agree with that? Any, I better question. Anyone disagree with that? That we should not put obstacles in front of people that Jesus does not put there. And he said, yes and amen. We all agreed with that. Now, this friend is at a Presbyterian church in Georgia, and they had nominated someone to become an elder in their church, one of the leaders of the church. And uh, they have this elder training class that is a good thing. They were like, this helps you onboard, helps you get to know what you need to do. Uh, it's not a biblical requirement. It never says you have to have a class for your elders in order for someone to become an elder. But we think it's a helpful thing. And they nominated a guy who they really felt like he's qualified, he's called, he's uniquely gifted. Um, but he can't make it to any of the training classes because he doesn't work a nine to five job. And so now the question is, 
Are we willing to stand by our, our polity and create this barrier to him serving the way that we believe he's called to serve because of this thing that we've built around it? Now, we built it there to protect it, right? We don't want people to enter lightly into that kind of service. But if the protection gets in the way and we're telling someone that this protection we built around God's commitment, you see the struggle? And so that's how quickly our good intentions can become obstacles to people. And so that had happened times 10 to the Pharisees. So that's woe number one. Woe number two in verse 15 says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when you becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now, proselyte is a, a word for convert. You travel across land and sea to make a single convert. And when you do make a convert, they become twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, that's a really harsh saying. And you think, you know, all right, you better back that up, Jesus. But here's a, um, a comment that I found particularly helpful. This commentator says this. He says, sometimes shock treatment is needed, especially and perhaps primarily for wayward religious leaders professing the truth. New converts to any ideology are often easily spurred on and to a much greater zeal than can be maintained by those who have been adherents longer and have become more temperate. Strong warnings here uh, are for those with great evangelistic fervor in any age. Such people had better be preaching the true gospel, end quote. Now, it's not often in a church this day and age, you're going to hear a message about evangelism that is warning you not to do it. And that's not what Jesus is saying exactly, but he is saying you must exercise a great deal of caution in the way that you share your faith with others. Because, in other words, when we share our faith with others, we have to ask ourselves this question. Are we sharing our personal preferences? Are we sharing our personal theology, our personal political views, our personal taste, or are we sharing the one true gospel. Now, where I have to be careful with this is in the past when I've been sharing my faith with someone, when I've been discipling someone, I take them along to do things I like to do. In fact, Jesus did the same thing. They would be doing activities. They wouldn't just sit in a classroom. And so for me, that means we're going to uh, fancy coffee shops and we're going to craft breweries and we're doing all of the things that Mike likes to do. And what I have to ask myself is at the end of the day, did I point them to Jesus? Did I connect them to Jesus? Or did I convert them into a coffee snob or a beer connoisseur? Are they more into the things I'm into or did they actually connect with Jesus? And that's true for each and every one of us. I think it's especially challenging uh, in youth ministry. Sorry to call you out, Samuel. But I've known many youth pastors who are very cool, very charismatic, and they will spend time with people and Students will, you know, come to their gatherings and they'll flock to them and they'll get all this positive attention, but they never quite get into the thing that you're into. They just get into how cool the person is. And so they follow the person, they follow the system, they follow, um, you know, a fun light show and music and smoke machines, but they don't actually connect with Jesus. And so that's why he's saying, uh, you know, you guys are standing outside the kingdom and you're converting people, but you're only converting them to be like you. You're not converting them to follow God's commandments, which is why he says you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, woe number three 
This is a long one. And you may think that this one doesn't apply, but trust me, it does. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by the temple and uh, by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and him who sits upon it. Now there's a couple things going on there. And I know most of us are not in the regular practice of oath-taking, especially on the church grounds. So you just have to bear with me for a minute. We'll get to what he's talking about. But Jesus maintains that the temple, the sanctuary, the gold, uh, the, you know, the gifts here, the altar, uh, and the gift on the altar all point to God and all remain equally sacred. And they're not sacred because gold is sacred or because a temple is sacred, but because of what it points to being sacred. And so they're all equally binding. Now the Pharisees, in a well-motivated, catch that, a well-motivated, but misled attempt to protect the obedience to God's law, had built up an elaborate fence around God's law through detailed stipulations of their special tradition. And one commentator says it like this. He says, The arbitrary distinctions between oaths was indeed an instance of moral blindness. So the question for our modern church with this third woe is this. Where have we as a church with good intentions taught people meaningless distinctions about what pleases God? Where have we taught people meaningless distinctions about what pleases God? Now, if you're not familiar with him, I'd encourage most of you are watching on a computer right now. So open a new tab, search this, and then come back to this tab for another half hour. But there's a rapper named Lecrae. And he's a gifted musician. He's also an incredibly gifted speaker. You can catch his sermons on YouTube. And I was listening to his testimony one time, and he was saying, before he was a Christian, he was a young man, and he was driving around with some friends in a car, smoking things they shouldn't be smoking, drinking things they shouldn't be drinking, uh, especially while driving, on a Sunday morning, blaring loud music. And they rolled past a church that was meeting for worship at the time, and the driver reached over and turned down the radio as they were driving past the church. And Lecrae was like, what's that about? And he said, that's God's house. Now, is God any more pleased with their behavior on that Sunday morning because they turned down their music out of reverence for a building that they drove past? Does anyone want to make that argument? But they probably didn't invent that. They probably learned that from somewhere. They learned... And and the thing that also struck me was, uh, if you've ever seen the movie The Godfather or the TV show The Sopranos. You'll see these uh, these gangsters who kill people during the week show arbitrary levels of piety and reverence when they step into a church. And they're like, well, as long as I take care of God in God's space, I can do, you know, do my business my way out in my space. And that's just not true. First of all, as a Christian, we believe you're a Christian because the living spirit of God dwells within you, meaning you're a living temple, you're a living stone. Anywhere you go is where God goes. And so there's no such thing as uh, a space that's holier than another space uh, in that sense. 
And so, and, you know, I would say on the list of things that Lecrae mentioned in his testimony, uh, the loud music was probably the least offensive thing to God on the list. And that was the thing they were willing to, well, we'll just turn that down uh, as we drive past. But that's a meaningless distinction. And they probably didn't come up with an own. that somehow they have learned that from Christians. And even as a non-Christian, Lecrae was like, that doesn't seem right. And so now as a, as a minister of the gospel, he uh, preaches a much fuller gospel than what he was receiving in that car ride. And so that's the third woe is, you know, what with good intentions are meaningless distinctions that we teach people about what pleases God. Now the fourth woe, this is my favorite, and this one, every day this week when I've been cooking, this one comes up to me. It's uh, verses 23 and 24. Woe number four. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, first of all, I love the imagery here. And this has been, uh, I was at a friend's church that used this imagery just from this woe to talk about Jesus' sense of humor. And to illustrate here, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, a gnat is very small. Now, most of us have been, you know, we've been having a little cabin fever, so we'll go out on our front porch and drink wine. And occasionally you get a little gnat that lands in your drink, right? And you just kind of try to pour it out tactfully or, uh, I don't know, boldly take a swig and trust providence. But... Uh, that's not my style. I strain it out. But he's saying, so this church I went to, they had their art department create a paper mache life-size replica of a camel, which is huge, by the way. Like, would just totally dwarf me if it was behind me. And he said, Jesus' illustration here is if you got a glass of wine and you get out a special net and things like that to try to strain out a gnat out of your wine, and then you go to your next wine glass and there's a camel in it, and you're like, no, that looks fine. And you drink out of it. It's, it's a hilarious image because a, you know, camel can't even get a foot inside of a wine glass. And so he said, you're missing the huge thing in front of you while scrutinizing over the tiny thing. And what the first part says is for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And what he's saying is you're tithing off of your spice rack. Now I was cooking yesterday. In fact, I went to the grocery store. I had to get some new groceries. I've been following, you know, I've called myself a Christian my entire life, but never have I ever, when I come home from the grocery store and get a new little cylinder of cumin, poured it all out, measured off 10% of it, taken that to church, put it in the altar, come back, taken my 90% and put it back on the spice rack. But that's what he's saying they're doing. And it's important to note, he's not even making fun of them for that. He's actually saying that's a good practice, but not at the expense of something else. But they're tithing off of their spice rack. Every little thing. That, now, they didn't buy it from a store. They would grow it in their own little herb garden. And so when they harvest their herbs, they would take the best 10% and put them on the altar and give them to God. That's a wonderful practice. But if that's all you're doing and calling yourself a faithful servant of God, you're missing something huge. And one commentator said this. Minor matters are overly elevated and major ones are neglected. In fact, he goes on to say, Christians in many ages have done a remarkable job of majoring on minors and minoring on majors. So the question is, 
now before we start picking on people, uh, and I would imagine we're all guilty there in some way, before we start picking on people, you have to ask, why would someone do that? Why would you ignore the major commandments of the faith and try to focus on the minor ones? And the only answer that I can come up with is that the minor ones are easier to keep. You can sit down at the end of the day and say, I measured out my mint and my dill and my cumin and I gave the first 10%. In fact, I couldn't even figure out if it was 9 or 10, so I rounded up to 11 and gave that. And I gave that all to God. And you can put your your head on your pillow at night and say, I am a good person. I did what was commanded of me. God is pleased with me because I did this. However, what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, how much of that do you have to do in a day to be able to put your head on the pillow and say, I completely filled God's mandate for justice today? You can't do that. It's, it's so unattainable. It's so out of reach that you could never build your pride on your works if those were the works you were measuring yourself against. So instead, you find your sense of holiness, your sense of righteousness in these minor works, fulfilling these little aspects of the faith. And to me, the, the crux of the matter, the crux of the matter, the central issue for all of these woes is that we are not able to separate personal piety and devotion from larger systemic issues. You can't choose one or the other to focus on. Now, tithing spices while neglecting weightier matters is like maintaining perfect church attendance, giving 10% to your tithing, doing charitable giving on top of that, but not caring about the unjust murder of someone like George Floyd or countless others. Now, and I'm not even saying go pick up a sign and protest, but If in your heart of hearts, you are not disturbed, that doesn't bother you, that doesn't violate your sense of justice, your God-given sense of justice, then you have majored in the minors and you are minoring in the majors. You are not properly ordering the things God has asked you to care about. Now, on the other hand, now this cuts both ways, because I'm saying not one or the other, but both together is the Christian life. If you're willing to pick up a sign and go to a process at justice fence, but you can't be bothered to pray every day. You can't be bothered to open scripture on your own. You can't be bothered to go to church. You can't be bothered to tithe regularly, 10% of what, of what God has given to you. Then you are also missing out on part of what Jesus has called you to. And what I love about this passage, this section of this passage, is it also comes with a warning against overcorrection. Jesus does not say, stop doing the first thing. Stop tithing your mint, dill, and cumin and focus on the second thing. Jesus urges us to pursue both. Both personal piety, personal devotion, and the pursuit of justice and mercy. And so it is never on us to pick one or the other of those as being essential and the other one non-essential. We must do both. In fact, if you are a highlighter, underliner in your Bible... The one that I've chosen, the verse that I've chosen to highlight, I believe it's verse 24 here, where it says, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. That's the entire picture of the Christian life. Is that, yes, personal devotion, personal faithfulness, gratitude towards God, tithing and gift giving, that is all part of it. But you have to also care about justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so that was the longest woe. The fifth woe is this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Now there isn't even that much to say about this. That one is pretty potent, pretty self-explanatory, and it pairs nicely with the next one. Except to say this, when we judge other people by their external appearance, and we act as if we will be judged by our own external appearance, that's like taking a big swig of a glass that is finely cleaned and polished on the outside, but inside is full of dirt and mold. Everyone else may see you drinking from some luxurious uh, gauntlet, but what you are actually drinking from is full of dirt and mold and is rotten on the inside. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, and, and then what's he say about that? He says, clean the inside of the cup as well as the outside of the cup. He's not saying, you know, look like a slob on the outside and be, you know, a diamond in the rough. He's saying it's the whole picture. You don't get to pick one part over the other. Now, the inside's harder to clean. Uh, just ask my dishwasher. I have like a blender that I use for smoothies, and we put it in the dishwasher, and the outside comes out clean every time, and there's always like little green stuff on the inside. And I'm like, come on, dishwasher. Makes me want an opaque glass. But woe number six. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, I assume you all know this, that a tomb, if you go to Spring Grove and walk around, a tomb, whether the stone is cracked or clean, whether it is dirty and worn out or rusty, whatever is on the outside, the inside is always full of the same thing, a dead person. And so Jesus is saying, you guys are like someone who polishes tombstones, thinking that they'll look more lively. But they don't. They still house a dead person. And here's the thing. This is what's insidious about this woe. The longer you have been doing this, the better you are at doing it. And the less you realize you are doing it. All of us know what will make us look more acceptable to other people, whether it's out in the culture or in the church. We know how to make ourselves appear holier than we are because it's easy. We can control, you know, especially on social media. People only see the parts of you that you want seen. You can curate an image of yourself being whatever you want people to see you as. And so Jesus warns against that, that that's like, that's like cleaning the outside of a tomb and pretending like there's life inside. And that's just not the case. And so if all we do with our religion is just to put the appearance of it up, it may impress other people. But Jesus says here it is a worthless religion. And woe, by the way, is a declaration of death. It's a proclamation of forthcoming death. It's like, it's, it's a foregone conclusion, you're going to die. That is what woe means. In fact, I was just talking to Joe and Helen in the atrium, and they were talking about Isaiah 6. Woe is me. When, when Isaiah enters the presence of God, he says, woe is me. He assumes as soon as he's in God's presence, he's going to kill me. That was his only conclusion. And here Jesus is saying, woe 
to you Pharisees. And so the seventh woe, now what I warned the first service about, but I have not yet warned you about, is that if you have gone through all of these woes and felt like none of them applied to you, first of all, you're wrong. Secondly, the seventh one's going to hit you hard. Because the seventh one is for the deniers. Woe number seven, verses 29 to 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that you may come, uh, so that you may come all the, uh, pardon me, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, this is Jesus' final woe to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 here. And in it, Jesus warns against a feeling of superiority that we get from reading about the past. Because what the Pharisees would do is they would read the stories of the prophets in the Old Testament. And the prophets were badly treated, to put it mildly, by the people of Israel, most of whom were murdered and persecuted. And they read that story and they think, oh, if only I was alive back there, I would have stood with them. I wouldn't have allowed that to happen to them. And Jesus says, yeah, you would have. You absolutely would have done it. And he said, if you need proof of that, look at what you're going to do a week from now. Because before you stand the prophet of God, whom you will kill. And after he's resurrected and Jesus gives them his church, they are persecuted and chased from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and scattered the remotest parts of the earth. And so Jesus says, you testify against yourselves. And so here's a couple of things I want to remind you of as we kind of wind down here. The first is, now this is tricky because the initial charge for me was to do the entire chapter, which would have been 12 more verses on the front end, three more verses on the back end. Instead, I'm just going to tell you then in verse 1, when you study this later, look at who Jesus is speaking to. He is not addressing these woes to the Pharisees to the Pharisees. He is speaking them to the crowd and his disciples. Meaning, the woes to the Pharisees are not just for the Pharisees. In fact, they weren't even directly delivered to the Pharisees, as far as I can tell. And so if you've listened to each one of these woes and not found yourself guilty then I have terrible news for you because you're deceiving yourself. And the seventh woe is you. You're listening to the Pharisees and you're like, oh, I would have stood with Jesus back then. I wouldn't have been in the crowd with the Pharisees. Yes, you would have. And if you weren't, then you would be a week from them. Now, a famous pastor once warned that we need to be careful not to become Pharisees about the Pharisees. Now, if we read about the Pharisees and we say, thank goodness, we are not like them. We know so much better than them. You sound exactly like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 15. Who says, I thank you God that I am not like this sinner, this tax collector right here. But you've made me special. And 
If you're going to criticize the Pharisees and try to distance yourself from them, you probably shouldn't quote them while you're doing it. I'm just going to gently suggest that to you. So if you say, thank goodness that I am in no way like these Pharisees in Scripture, you're actually quoting the Pharisees in Scripture, and you've got a real predicament on your hands. And so I'm going to tell you something that you're not likely to hear in most churches, but I believe is true. And you have to allow me a little bit of grace with this sentence, because it's a hard one to hear, and there's some nuance to it, because it's a tricky word. But the Pharisees were very much like the evangelicals of their day. The way that word is used in American culture, they were very much like the evangelicals. They were devoted, they were passionate, they were politically engaged, and they were deeply religious. Now, on the other side of that, the Sadducees were more like the what we would call the theological liberals. Uh, and in the last week of Jesus' life, he confronts both of them, and we've seen in the Past weeks, you know, the Sadducees would just pick and choose things they want to believe. The Pharisees were so zealous that they were like, we're going to double down on our morality, our God-given morality. And they were like, if we can just whip everybody into obedience, then God will restore our, our country to us. That was literally their belief. Though God will chase the Romans out and Israel will be Israel once again if we can just get everyone to act morally. And Jesus says, look... In the last week of his life, he's talking about what's essential. And he looks at the Sadducees, and he looks at the Pharisees, and he says, here are two different ways to miss what Jesus is about. There are two equally incorrect paths to finding Jesus. And one is through kind of a a liberal, secular neglect of Jesus, and one is through a conservative, white-knuckled, disciplined religious approach. And so the question is, well, what's left, <laughs> right? If you take away the Sadducee path to Jesus and the Pharisee path to Jesus, you have to ask what is left. And our temptation is always to try to decide for ourselves which parts of Jesus' teaching are essential, which parts are non-essential. And we live out those distinctions every day. Whether you consciously think about what's not essential versus non-essential, how you live reflects what you believe about that. Now, there's a very modern false dichotomy uh, that I hear floating around a lot in, in our culture. And people will like to say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Fill in the blank. They say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Now, there's a comedian I was listening to, and he said that uh, he's heard that phrase so many times on first dates. He lives out in L.A. with uh, women out there, and he said... Every time someone says to me, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, he likes to say, well, I'm not honest, but you're interesting. Wait for it. Okay. (laughs) There it is. Now, Christians are guilty of that as well. Because I hear people say, not religion, but Jesus. But is that what Jesus is saying in this passage? Is Jesus saying, stop tithing your mint, dill, and cumin? Stop your religious practices? No. He's saying... You do that as well as these things. That's what it means to follow me. And so he's not letting you just throw religion under the bus, but religion that only seeks to honor itself and to bring uh, deference and honor to the person practicing it is not Jesus's way of religion at all. We see Jesus carve out the path of humility. And so the initial criticism in this passage of the Pharisees involves a discrepancy between their words and their deeds. 
But since none of us are guilty of that, we're going to talk about the second overarching theme here, which is the Pharisees have this major flaw that now emerges through Jesus' seven woes. And it is their love of praise and admiration. Their love of deference and honor, being given the special seat, being seen uh, favorably in the eyes of others. And the only solution to all of these woes that gives us both the sense of value so we don't need to be seeking it from others, we don't need to be seen well by others, and the humility that doesn't cause us to puff ourselves up is the gospel. Jesus provides for us everything that is essential. In the gospel, we do not need to impress others with our complex displays of religion because we don't need to earn our standing before God. It's been given to us in Jesus. And by the way, if you're not currently in one of our virtual small groups, you should join one today. We've got a group of questions that go out that really pick these apart and I think hopefully help you start to apply the truth of these woes in your life and um, hopefully make you squirm a little bit, but not too much, because the goal here is to remind you how no man-made religion can get you in right relationship with God. It is only through relationship with Jesus. And so in the gospel, we do not need to impress other people with our complex displays of religion. In the Christian life, the answer is not, nor is it ever, to double down on our morality and try to display ourselves as more perfect than everyone around us. But rather, the goal of the Christian life is to lean continuously on God's grace and forgiveness. To understand that we have already been given what we try to work for ourselves, and that we are now acting in response to that generous and gracious gift. In following Jesus, we are instructed to maintain personal holiness, which is your prayer life, your devotion, your tithing, all of those things, we are instructed to follow Jesus through personal holiness and outward signs of grace, which is our love of neighbor, our pursuit of justice, the love of the poor and the oppressed, and the care for God's creation. We cannot pick and choose from what Jesus says is essential because it is Jesus who sets the standard. And so while at first this passage may sound really angry, really vitriolic, What we see is actually a desperate and loving plea to enter into right relationship with God and to put aside all of our phony pretenses and find a genuine relationship with Jesus. Will you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for the gift and the challenge that is your written word. We pray now that you would use your your text to pierce our hearts, not that we would sit in misery or uh, feel bad about ourselves, but that you would use this to convict and move us to action that you would use this uh, to open our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds to the ways in which we try to impress other people. We try to impress you with our elaborate displays of religion and learn uh, to lean and to trust on you for all that we need, for all that you say is essential in life. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.